The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Before I go into my sermon, I just want to thank you all again for welcoming me to be with your community and worship this Sunday morning in this uh, astonishingly beautiful sanctuary space. Uh, and uh, much thanks to the worship team and the tech team for, for welcoming me and to the choir and musicians for that uh, transcendent music this morning. It is a delight to be with you. This story doesn't have an ending, we said. I wonder if we could think up a new one together. The stories we tell about who we are and where we come from and how we all relate together and who is the most important, these stories matter. I want to talk a little bit today about old stories and new stories and why it matters. But first, I want to tell you my favorite Charles Darwin story as an introduction to a new kind of story about life that he has helped us to tell. February 12th was uh, Charles Darwin's birthday. It's a weekend that many UU congregations celebrate as Evolution Sunday. So you can also think of this as a very, very belated, happy 214th birthday to Charles Darwin. So Charles Darwin, from a very young age, had a hobby of collecting and classifying living things. And he became rather a good amateur naturalist in the process of practicing his hobby. And in particular, as a young student at Christ College at Cambridge, he got taken up in the popular craze of the day for collecting beetles. You don't think as a parent that your kid is going to go off to college and get mixed up in entomology, but it happens. So one day, Charles was out on the quad, busy not doing his homework, and he happened to spy an unfamiliar species of beetle climbing on a tree. And excited by his find, he stopped to gather it in his right hand, whereupon he noticed that there was a regular caravan of beetles going up and down the trunk, so he grabbed another a specimen in his left hand, and then, having run out of useful appendages, but with more beetles still within easy reach, he did what any coleopterologist, any beetle guy worth his salt would do. He put the beetles in his mouth for safekeeping so he could gather some more. Whereupon the beetles, much aggrieved and aggressed upon, sprayed a noxious blast of chemicals from their hind ends directly onto his tongue. So, from Charles Darwin, we learned two important things. All life on Earth arose from a common ancestor through a continuously unfolding natural process that took place over billions of years. And very important, when securing beetles with your mouth for safekeeping, be sure to place them between the lips, butt side facing out. If you remember one thing from this sermon, right? You might not think so from this anecdote, but Charles Darwin was one of the greatest geniuses who ever lived and one of the greatest scientists who ever lived. The influence of Darwin's work on later scientific study is incalculable. He is the foundation from which all life scientists and all natural historians begin. Outside the sciences, his ideas shook the pillars of Western civilization and challenged old, worn-out notions of philosophy and religion. 
He revolutionized our understanding of what it means to be human and what our place in the web of life is, such that more than 150 years later, we are still working out the implications of his discoveries. And yet, Darwin is a different kind of genius than what we usually think of. He's, he's not the picture we usually have of this unparalleled mind having this kind of sudden eureka moment and then all these great ideas just spill out of their overheated brain. He is not an Einstein imagining himself riding on a beam of light and having a flash of insight that becomes the theory of special relativity. He's not the young Sir Isaac Newton who cooped up at home for a couple of summers, college being closed for the plague, invented calculus, optics, and the law of gravity just to kill some time. That is a true story. Isaac Newton redefined what it means to say, yeah, I had a pretty good year. Darwin's genius was of a different sort. Darwin's genius was grounded in a passionate love of seeing of carefully examining the natural world all around him, of taking it all in and sketching it out in his notebooks, and then in the enormous patience with which he made his scientific case, with which he formulated his ideas after he had begun to suspect what he had begun to suspect. He painstakingly accumulated data and corroborating evidence from many different scientific branches, zoology, geology, botany, paleontology, animal husbandry, and from the study of many diverse kinds of life, right? Beetles, turtles, the famous Galapagos finches, carrier pigeons, bivalves, orchids, primates. He built the case for his great idea from a mountain of evidence over decades of work, only finally taking his ideas to the public when it seemed like he was about to be scooped by someone else. And by then his work was unassailable. So Charles Darwin, of course, is the person credited with the discovery of evolution through natural selection. That is to say, he discovered that all present-day living things, you, me, algae, antelopes, orchids, badgers, mushrooms, mosquitoes, all can be traced back through time to a single common ancestor, which was basically a leaky bag of cell bits powered by light. And he discovered that all of this magnificent living variation sprang up through the process of natural selection, whereby small changes caused by random mutations accumulate over time as they prove beneficial to an organism's survival and reproduction, multiply those selected changes by billions of years, and you can go from single-celled organisms like bacterium to multi-celled organisms like Ryan Gosling. And it was Darwin's genius to painstakingly accumulate a massive body of evidence through travels all over the world in order to make his case. And today, 214 years after Darwin's birth, his vision of evolution is as much established fact as anything in science can be. And yet the radical implications of his discovery and the spiritual implications of his discovery, we are still wrestling with because evolution calls us to rethink and reimagine our relationship to life on Earth. Before the theory of evolution, the fundamental story to explain the appearance and diversity of life on Earth, at least in the West, which is where we are, was the book of Genesis, right? In the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Old Testament. The book of Genesis says, of course, that the universe 
the earth and all life was created over the course of six days by God, and then to cap off this project, at the end of the sixth day, God created humans as a special act of creation, as the only object of creation made in the image of God. Then God put us in charge of everything that came before, and in the story, we humans are granted dominion over the earth and all its living things. Now, there are, of course, other interpretations of this story that are possible. This sermon is not intended to be a critique of that text itself, but rather the interpretation of that text that has taken hold in the Western imagination. And that interpretation is centered on our specialness and our dominion. But evolution takes the idea of the special creation of human life, the life that is radically different from other kinds of living beings, and replaces it with the idea that all life, including our own, is the product of one continuously unfolding process set in motion ultimately by the birth of the universe. Evolution replaces the six days of Genesis with 14 billion years, give or take, 12 billion years from the Big Bang to make a Milky Way galaxy, to shape and cool and properly water a nutrient-rich planet Earth, an unknown amount of time for some of those nutrients to spontaneously organize into replicating molecule chains, and then two billion years, give or take, for those replicating molecule chains to organize into living cells, and then for those living cells to diversify into the life we see all around us. So Charles Darwin surmised, and science tends to confirm his view, that all things alive today are the common descendants of one ancestral organism. And from this single root grew the tangled tree of life, right? As species branched off and branched off and branched off from their forebears, each finding their own unique way to make a successful living in the ecosystem. But popular depictions of evolution often greatly simplify this process to show this sort of linear march of life forms through time, right? We've all seen the posters, right? With the fish like crawling out of the water, evolving into the reptile, then the mammal, then primates and humans. The arrangement visually suggests a process of replacement, of one thing turning into another, newer, better thing. It reads like a story of progress where humans are at the end of progress. And in this way, the emotional content of the old dominion idea of humanity's special specialness is preserved within the new framework of evolution. We think naturally in terms of lower and higher life forms and we place ourselves at the top of this ladder of being. And so the question is sometimes, I'm honestly asked, uh, thinking of life as this progression from worse to better as of replacement, that if monkeys evolved into humans, why are monkeys still around? If the lower life forms evolved into higher life forms, why weren't the lower life forms replaced? And this is an honest question, but it involves a misunderstanding because, of course, monkeys did not evolve into humans, but rather monkeys and humans share a common ancestor. And what that means is at some point there was a species that was not a monkey and not a human, and some of its descendants settled on the monkey way of being in the world, which is awesome, and some of its descendants settled on the human way of being in the world, which is equally awesome. 
Evolution is not a linear progression. It is a branch giving rise to more branches which give rise to more branches which give rise to more branches. And our human species then is like one tiny green shoot on one of millions of branches on the tree of life, each having come into existence in exactly the same way, each sharing the common trait of having found an awesome way of being in the world. How absurd then to circle our one tiny shoot on this enormous bristling plant of healthy successful growths and say, well this is clearly the reason this plant exists and all of the whole must exist to service this little shoot. Evolution has been called a second Copernican revolution. The first Copernican revolution said the earth and thus humankind is not at the center of the universe but lies in one corner of a spiraling galaxy amidst billions of galaxies. Evolution, the second Copernican revolution, says humankind is not at the center of the biosphere either. We're not a special act of creation made by God on the sixth day and given dominion over the earth. We are not above other living beings. In this way, evolution proposes a radical decentering of the human story and the overall story of life on Earth. We're one species among millions, all created by the same unthinking process, neither more nor less likely, neither more nor less chosen, neither more nor less destined for a bright future. Evolution tells us in the words of UU Minister Forrest Church that we come from a common source and we share a common destiny. And what a common source it is born of ancient stars whose matter traversed billions of miles of space to shape our galaxy, our world, and ultimately become our very flesh and blood. We have stardust in our bones and stardust in our veins, and our story is as old as the universe and inseparable from the universe. What mystery and magic and dignity there is in this story of life. Now you can certainly believe in evolution and still believe in some concept of God or deity. Some 30% of Americans who believe in evolution also believe the process was set in motion or somehow inspired by or guided by a divine being. Scientifically speaking, the theory of evolution doesn't require a helper God to work, but it's not incompatible with a helper God. What I would say to anyone who does believe that evolution is the means by which God created life is to consider the story of evolution then as an alternative creation text and ask, what is the meaning of this story? It is a story which emphasizes our kinship, our interconnectedness, our interdependence with all other living things. It is not a story of dominion. The dominion mythos, I believe, has been a ticking time bomb within our culture. So long as humans were limited, in their capacity to materially affect their environment. This worldview might condone the local exploitation of animals, the local despoliation of the environment, but it could not break out to do global harm. But for the last several centuries, our astonishing increase in technological prowess has been harnessed to the engine of global capitalism to exert our dominion over the world to an unprecedented degree and too late we are discovering as climate change and species extinction spiral out of control, 
that our pretense at dominion is an illusion, is an illusion that we remain in the end utterly dependent on natural systems vastly greater than our ability to predict and control. We need a creation story that emphasizes our kinship with the web of life. We need a creation story that restores the dignity of the natural world and all its living inhabitants. We need a creation story that brings us back into the oneness with the processes that nurture and sustain us. And we need a creation story that reconnects us to the awesomeness and the enchantment of the natural world. And those creation stories exist in other cultures. Biologist Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is also a member of the Potawatomi Nation, writes in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass. She writes, in the Western tradition, there is a recognized hierarchy of beings with, of course, the human being on top, the pinnacle of evolution, the darling of creation. But in native ways of knowing, she says, human people are often referred to as the younger brothers of creation. We say that humans have the least experience with how to live and thus to most to learn. And we must look to our teachers among the other species. For example, she says their wisdom is apparent in the way that they live. They teach us by example. They have been on the earth far longer than we have been and have had more time to figure things out. And so in a 2015 article called Nature Needs a New Pronoun, Robin Wall Kimmerer relates how Darwin's fundamental scientific discovery that all life is not just interrelated but literally related, that all living things are kin. She says this insight is already embedded in the very language of some native people. Kimmerer says that in her native language of Anishinaabe, which was erased from her family in the boarding schools and which she is relearning, it is impossible to speak of a living thing as an it. In Anishinaabe and many other indigenous languages, she says, we use the same words to address all living beings as we do our family, because they are our family. And imagine if embedded in our language itself was the idea that nature is our kin, our kin. How different would our world be? Would our oceans be dying? Would our forests be disappearing? Would the mass extinction of non-human species be an unrecognized, uncontested, and unchallenged reality of the modern world as it, in fact, is today? How differently would we orient ourselves to the world if we saw it as kin, which it is? Darwin wrote, there is grandeur in this view of life with its several powers having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. There is grandeur in this view of life. It is the view of life to which our seventh Unitarian Universalist principle calls us, one rooted in the most profound respect for the great web of being, in profound gratitude to life and our relationship to it, and one which must call us to some grief for the ways in which we have dishonored that relationship, for the ways in which we have torn the fabric of that web. 
written into each creature, howsoever humble is the history of the universe. You, me, the squirrels chasing each other on the lawn, the insects churning the soil underneath, the birds serenading us above. We are all part of the same ancient story of life, unfolding since before the stars even lit the skies. And within us and through us all moves the same creative force, bringing endless new forms of life into being. The same stream of life that runs through my veins night and day, says the poet Tagore, runs through the world and dances in rhythmic measures. May we encounter this enchanted world and know its ancient beauty, feel our deep kinship with life teeming all around, and then let us learn a new creation story. Not a story of separation and domination, but a story of connection and care, a story of kinship. And may this new story be a story of renewal, a story of hope, and a story of healing for our world that so needs healing. Blessed be and amen. Good morning. My name is Sarah Fareed. Every year during this time when we are asked to commit financially to make this congregation and its life possible for the next year, some folks are asked to share about their journey to and with UUSF about why they love this place. This year, I get to share with you. Caring community. When we moved to San Francisco in 2010, I was ready to part ways with my Catholic upbringing, but I didn't want to lose traditions and structure that felt soothing in the Catholic and Maronite churches I grew up in. When we moved here, I was starting over again to build community, something I'd done many times over. I knew I needed a place I could feel inspired, grounded, informed, a place where my values would be reinforced by other loving adults for my kids, and one where my partner would feel free to hold his own beliefs and participate or not. We joined the RE program, and 12 years later, I serve today as chair of the Family Ministry Committee. Some of our favorite memories were made here with all of you the kids climbing the church tower while well, my nerves nearly got the best of me, but Joe Dellert quietly encouraged the kids and supported me to trust that they could do it. Serving dinners at the winter shelter and waffle breakfasts with the RE families, games, art, sing-alongs, canoe rides, and walks in the trees at the retreat. Just this week, Davia was reminiscing about the very unique experience of being in a tippy canoe with an older gentleman they didn't know, and how the whole thing was so you-you and just fabulous. Our whole lives curriculum has been essential for my kids. It further reinforced that all of who they are is important and seen here. Along the way, UUSF became much more than a place to reinforce my values for my kids. In small group ministry, I learned to listen better to others, and maybe, more importantly for me at the time, to myself. I heard my own deepest, most honest voice come to life, and I made joyful connections with members throughout the church community. More recently, I joined the pastoral care ministry and gained a sense of all of the ways in which this devoted group of people 
provides such thoughtful care, meals and phone calls, cards, rides, and so much more, when things might be hardest for us. Just one more way UUSF benefits us all. We've always felt welcome here, no matter how much we could contribute. And we were, as we were, and are able to do more, we did more. And we know we've received much, much more in return. Thank you.